Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Indranil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Welcome to this week's episode of Impact Unicorns. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global, which is an advisory firm helping institutional investors and asset managers make better asset allocation decisions based on both financial and ESG factors. Throughout Gina's 25-year career in the asset management industry, she's been at the bleeding edge of ESG investing. In the late 90s, she implemented some of the first strategies to exclude guns and tobacco at American Century Asset Management, and she was at the forefront of purpose-based investing in the mid-2000s with the California Foundation. With the exponential increase in computing power and the sophistication of data science today, Gina is now building a fintech arm of her company that will transform her methodologies into better decision-making tools that the $150 trillion asset management industry deserves. Tools like those being developed at Chantico Technologies will be essential to separate investable signals from the noise created by exploding quantities of unstructured, non-standardized ESG data. For ESG investing to have the kind of impact that we all hope it will have, this type of decision-making support will be critical for asset managers around the world going forward. Gina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Antonelle. Well, we go way back. Um, I think it's uh, 13, 14 years now, as long back as uh, when I was at Mubadala and uh, you were in your Rubini era. Correct. But that, that was kind of the midpoint, perhaps, of your illustrious career. Tell us a little bit about uh, what came before and what came after that global financial crisis period. <laughs> sure. So I, I was a portfolio manager. My whole kind of career was focused on um, making the best investments. I ran $6.5 billion of asset allocation uh funds, the American Century Strategic Asset Allocation Funds. But as part of that, um, I also managed our 529 plans and our socially responsible investing funds. And so, you know, I've been watching this space since, you know, just the early era of pure divestment as a method of thinking about how to create impact. And, you know, I went from there to actually investing money for the California Endowment, which is a healthcare uh, foundation located in California with the mission to help increase access to health care for the underserved in California. And that's really where, you know, I started to not only experience, but understand the idea that investment goes well beyond just pure shareholder return, that when you have an underlying mission, that your investment dollars can actually augment that and still garner a better than market level return. And so, you know, that that was uh, an interesting perspective um, to come away from that experience uh, with. I then went to go work for Nouriel Rabini, and there, that's where we got to interact. And I think a lot of the work we did, particularly with you, Indra Nell, because Mubadala had um, multiple goals, 
Mubadala was attempting not only to derive uh, uh, an investment rate return, a better than investment rate return, but they also had this very aggressive policy agenda that you had the, the, the job of, of helping to facilitate and to measure and to understand. And us, by virtue of being a consultant to you, we really had to put on that lens of how do you build uh, a new sector where one did not exist how do you plan that? And what are the things that will herald success over the long-term, not just a 12-month horizon or a 24-month horizon, but a 10-year horizon? And so, you know, from that perspective, it was probably some of the most interesting work that I got to do. And I got to take that lens over into the new fund, uh, if rather the new firm that I created, Chantigo Global, which is uh, which which we do work with <laughs> together, um, and and part of the idea is that we're trying to build better asset allocation models, but we also have to do that through the lens of what increases productivity, what what you know what is happening with demographics, what are these slow moving trends that we're not paying attention to, but have enormous explanatory effect on what our return profile looks like over time. So let's just uh, focus on a few dates here. So when you were with um, um, the the role before Rubini, um, uh, what, what what was the period? That was two thousand seven eight. That was actually two thousand and six to two thousand and eight. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, two thousand and six until uh, two thousand and nine when I left to to go join Rubini, which I would say would say marked the height of excess liquidity in the market. People were paying stupid multiples for all sorts of crazy things. Um, and it, it was just, it was an interesting time to be an observer in the market as an institutional investor. Yes, and then, and then came, of course, the great reckoning, the, the global financial crisis. And then we worked together just after that while I was at Mubadala. Now, this is uh, 15 years, at least before, I think most people um, got the words ESG and impact investing in their vocabulary. But here you were, 2006, managing, I'm not sure how many billions of dollars, but a very large you know, asset portfolio. Four and a half billion dollars. Four and a half billion, already thinking about um, some of these uh, impact metrics. So what was it like you know, interacting with the rest of the industry when they kind of never heard the words ES and G in that order before? Well, I'll tell you the you know I had actually been doing it even far before that. In 1998, I was managing socially responsible in, uh, investments, um, tobacco fee funds, you know, um, uh, funds free of uh, you know gun manufacturers, et cetera. And and you know going from that era of investing where divestment was the primary way of expressing these kinds of perspectives. Um, and then kind of coming into a place where mission-related investing, um, it was seen, quite frankly, as a way to sneak in more budget for the, for the philanthropic side of the house um, and potentially take away returns from the investment side of the house. And the, the, um, the tension between the two sides of the foundation house was palpable. It was seen as a dirty word. Um, these are the kinds of investments that don't make any money, that bear headline risk, um, that are not beneficial. Um, and you know, in the end, you know, I think the California Endowment was very much a leader in that space, and they basically said, "This is what we're going to do." 
Um, and so, you know, it was it was interesting to watch that push and pull happen within a foundation that had one overarching mission, which was to help increase access to the underserved in, to healthcare to the underserved in California. But they were attempting to do it in a more creative way. If you're enjoying Impact Unicorns, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows. Bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the podcast. If you would like to review the show, go to the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes to leave a rating and review. So this is fascinating, really. If you look at this sort of 20-25 year period, we go back to early 2000s and maybe even 2006 when you know, the most people are doing, when, when I say people, I mean in pension funds, uh, asset management firms, uh, foundations, the maximum that they're doing is trying to eliminate, you know, guns and tobacco and some of these types of, uh, you know, sin, sin stocks, you could say, from their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a tiny, you know, uh, component of the industry that's trying to be mission oriented. And now you, you fast forward and people are still trying to filter out things that they don't want in their portfolio. But now it's not small sectors like guns and tobacco, it's hydrocarbon. Now, that's just, you know, a completely different ballgame because if you look at it, you know, pretty much every sector is highly carbonized. So if you're going to decarbonize your portfolio, that means complete, even just through filtering out stocks that are highly exposed to these things. That involves turning over a very large proportion of your capital, not just some small amount, and putting it out of one type of product or or, or assets into others' assets. So the question is, how do you actually move that amount of money? And is there enough uh, products to move it into? And similarly, if you're now more and more investment organizations are becoming mission-oriented, if you have a specific mission, do you have again enough things to invest in in that mission today because we're still at an early stage relatively speaking of companies being out there that can be invested in which are you know very purely green or social inclusion oriented so right tell us, tell us a little bit about this sort of supply and demand uh, well what you're kind of what you're sort of alluding to is what i like to call the slippery slope which is where do you choose to draw the line before you become disingenuous We had the same conversation around guns. For example, if you start to eliminate manufacture of guns, do you also eliminate banks who are financing them? Do you also eliminate logistics companies who are shipping them? Do you also eliminate? And that is the conversation that inevitably, that those are the questions that that sort of get asked if that's the approach that you're taking. And ultimately what I think that the, the what, what we have seen is an evolution starting in about ni- uh, the late nineties, but really in the mid two thousands, we started to see um, the evolution of of, uh, organizations that were formed around disclosure, frameworks for helping companies achieve proper disclosures that are usable, um, that can help measure progress toward any given goal. And so the idea is there's no way, for example, that you can claim um, to legitimately be participating in the energy transition and not have any conversations with the largest, most capitalized energy firms who are going to need to come to the table to actually make this happen, 
right? So cutting them out of your portfolio ensures that you don't have the largest amount of capital that could actually make a difference. Um, and so, so, you know, one of the things that, that has evolved has been the disclosure of data and frameworks for the disclosure of data. Um, and with that information, in theory, we can make better choices. Now, we are still a long way off from standardization. We're even a long way off from usability of the data that we're getting because there's still arguments over how things should be measured, what they should be measured, how often they should be measured, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, these frameworks are, are, are fairly new. Um, you know, SASB, um, GRI, uh, carbon, carbon Disclosure Project, these are all major frameworks that are being utilized. But as we get more and more data, we're able to get a little smarter about what it is we want to accomplish, how we can measure, and whether or not the thing that we're measuring will actually impact what we want at the end. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a little bit of an example, uh, maybe of some of the metrics that are being collected now so that investors have a little bit more insight into the non-financial um, goings on inside a company so that they can begin with the help of asset managers to pick the, the, the types of companies that fulfill their uh, impact missions? Right. So, you know, at, at the very least, we'd see we see a lot of, of dashboarding right now. So if if the first if the goal towards making change is to create consciousness, I would say that is the phase we are in right now, which is consciousness creation. Consciousness creation happens when you begin to at least make note of what your companies are doing in various ways. So in answer to your question directly, right, what are the kinds of measures that we're looking at? You know, we are looking at measures that measure um, in the environmental space, we're looking at carbon disclosure uh, data. So, you know, what are your scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions? Um, how are, you know, what, how are you participating as a company um, in recycling? How are you participating uh, in a company in any kind of, of efforts towards innovation um, uh, or, or carbon reduction? Do you have carbon reduction programs in place? The, the E side of data has a lot more frameworks available. They have been around for longer um, and they've had more time to, to sort of be created and, and start to, to standardize. We're not there yet, but at least we have better ideas. We still have issues around supply chains. We still have issues around kind of elements like product packaging and sort of the follow-on uh, effects um, that happen um, that are not easily counted in things like scope one emissions. But we have at least an idea of what it is we need. Where we have less visibility is in the S space um, and in the G space. Um, you know, in, 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 in governance, I'm going to skip over to the last, which is governance. Governance, we can get an idea of how many uh, females are on the board, how many uh, minorities are on the board, what is the CEO pay relative to the average worker pay, um, and other sort of forms are, do you have policies in place? Um, you know, what are the various policies? Are they reasonably fair? And so all of these sorts of governance issues um, are generally aided by organizations like Institutional um, Investor Services, IIS, which basically also does proxy voting uh, on behalf of institutional investors. And we can keep track of initiatives that go through the governance process and whether or not the governance process is, is, is 
working well or not working well relative um, to some standard, right? Now, the place where we have the least amount of data is in that social space, right? So the, 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 the S, you know, right now you look at the kinds of data that you can get your hands on. And all of this data, by the way, is still voluntary in the United States. There are mandatory disclosures in many countries around the world, but the United States is not one of those places where we have mandatory disclosures. And so things like how many women do you have in your workforce? Um, how many minorities do you have in your workforce? How many LGBTQ do you have in your workforce? Um, elements, just basic data like that is almost impossible to get your hands on. Never mind sort of what kinds of social impact your products have. You know, do you create greater equality or do you, you know, do inequality or do you reduce inequality by virtue of using um, your product? And, and so, you know, here we're seeing more and more companies that are evolving with a very specific goal goal in mind, um, like, for example, uh, fintech companies that are evolving to offer better metrics for credit that are not reliant um, on your sort of traditional credit metrics in order to be able to reach the underbanked and the underserved, right? And so these kinds of things are things that address the problem, but in this space, we have a dearth of data to be able to even look at and compare um, over time or to other companies in order to get a sense of, you know, what is the current situation? So let's say we're gra gradually improving the, the quality of the ESG data that we have about companies. Um, now, you mentioned this is slippery slope where maybe the idea isn't to try to screen out companies that don't look so good on, on these metrics, particularly if they're large parts of the economy, like oil companies, but perhaps to use the data to engage these companies and you know, be more influential um, as large asset managers at the firms that you're at, for example, to be, to be more vocal and advocate for change and actually drive change rather than you know, be out of the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, what um, you know, large asset managers, the ones who are, are really good at this, are doing mm -hmm. to, to affect change on, on, through the boards and through other mechanisms uh, in, in some of the largest uh, companies that need improvement on these ESG scores? Absolutely. And I would actually include that it's not just the asset managers and the institutional asset managers, but there are also um, there are also special interest groups that come to bear to sort of help shed very, very you know, specific studies, you know, and bring those to light as well to help inform these issues, right? So, you know, if you are an asset manager, you can begin by dashboarding. Um, you can become a little more active by voting your proxies um, consistent with a set of values that you as an organization espouse, right? You can take that a step further and you can begin um, consultation, which is a private form of engagement with companies on various issues. So for example, when issues, uh, when rampant issues of sexual harassment started to um, surface at various companies um, like McDonald's, for example, um, a group of, of, uh, of institutional shareholders got together a letter writing campaign in order to create uh, movement in that space. Um, you can then, if you cannot get where you're going um, by gathering together institutional shareholders in those letter writing campaigns and those consultations, um, you can begin 
uh, a more public engagement uh, campaign where you begin to talk to the media and you begin to say, hey, by the way, this company is engaging in these very bad practices. Did you know um, that there are people, um, you know, workers on the line, you know, at a, a various plant who don't get enough time to take bathroom breaks such that they have to wear diapers throughout their entire workday. Is that the kind of humane capital management um, that you want to be a part of as an investor, right? And so that becomes then a public engagement campaign. And those are the methods um, that we've seen um, that have so far been effective. And we've seen some incredible, you know, uh, stories come out of this. For example, Engine Number One had the backing of Calpers and had the backing of UC Regents, and were able to unseat an Exxon board member, and that is significant. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. So there is impact coming out of these uh, engagement programs. That's that's, that's a great example there. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in Chantico Global, because I think, you know, um, you take a very holistic view of, uh, you know, both the financial and the, you know, the ESG metrics in helping your clients um, to, to make good asset allocation and investment decisions. You know, walk us through, you know, what Chantico does and what it's bringing to the table. Absolutely. So what we're trying to bring to the table is a way of viewing data that we have tended to assume is, you know, overly static, but also where we believe that every data point is equal to every other data point. And by that, I mean, we tend to look back in history. And because many of us have, you know, enough statistical understanding to be able to perform a linear regression, that that hammer becomes the only tool we have in our toolbox, and we keep treating everything like a nail. And what we're trying to do at Chantico Global is we're trying to say, hey, wait a minute, let's take a step back. And let's examine the conditions that are in that are in play under each of those data points. And in fact, we might be able to get better forecasts if we condition the variables, if we filter the data such that a big pool of data can actually get filtered down to six different individual pools of data that exist under certain conditions, right? So what happens when money supply is expanding? What happens when money supply is contracting? What happens if you also have inflation going up at the same time? What happens when you also have earnings overvalued? And so if you can condition at the right levels, you can get a group of data that may be smaller, but a lot more valuable. And what we found is if you take that away just from the economic perspective, pure activity perspective, and you overlay some of these social conditions and some of these policy conditions and some of these other metrics, environmental conditions, it is even more enlightening. Um, which is to say that, that being able to channel your efforts under different conditions can actually yield you potentially a higher impact depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And what we're trying to do is help build the filters so that you don't throw your money at something that would have worked if you had other conditions. We're trying to help you filter your money so that you are actually investing in areas that will have an impact for the conditions we have now or the conditions we anticipate, not the conditions we had in, the, in, in, in history. Right, so if you're looking forward and you're thinking, hey, you know, these sorts of um, inflation and earnings and interest rate conditions are likely to exist in the future, you know, whatever mm -hmm. that time frame you may have in mind. And you know, at the same time, there seems to be this sort of great social trend towards 
uh, more inclusion, right? And we're decarbonizing um, everything. So we need to keep an eye on um, the carbon content of, you know, supply chains and things like that. So you'd be able to, you know, use the data that we've been talking about, both financial, which has been around and is quite, you know, much more thoroughly reported, and the ESG metrics whose reporting is improving. You'd be able to look at the data on on that for, for a given company, look at what you know scenario you you believe is going to happen in the future with these financial and you know non-financial uh, factors, and say, hmm, okay, my portfolio ought to have more of these types of companies which are well positioned for those conditions, and, and less of those other types of companies that aren't, and mm-hmm. create as tilt your asset allocation accordingly. And, and build better portfolios. Exactly, but I'll, I'll take it a step further because so much ESG data is still in the process of being collected. The reality is, is that we actually have a lot of other data, historical data that can give us some, some insight into whether or not that data if affects the potential for, for, for um, returns. For example, um, we have data on um, uh, peacetime, wartime. We have data on um, on we have crime data. So when are when do sort of people feel on average safe versus not safe? Um, we have data on the evolution of the infrastructure of our, inf- our of our public infrastructure. So when we're actively investing in public infrastructure versus when we are actively disinvesting in public infrastructure. As economies tend to grow, we tend to actually go up the inequality curve and then back down again. So we actually have a lot of data and a lot of history on what happens when 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 we have very unequal societies. What does that do, for example, to personal safety? And then what does that do to people's ability to actively go out and participate safely in the economy? And then what does that do for a CEO's ability to be able to forecast their earnings, right? We also have data on public trust, right? What happens when public trust is high versus when public trust is low? And does that make a difference on your does that cap or does it does it um, uh, encourage activity in an economy right and so those are the that kind of data we actually have a lot of data on Um, and and where we don't have tons of historical data we may have pockets of granular data where we might use um, uh, a very focused geography and use that to sort of make uh, to intuit what we believe and how we believe societies act um, and so, you know, that's the kind of information that we're already working with uh, in order to sort of help provide this kind of social lens onto investing, because at the end of the day, economics is a social science. It is not a hard science. It is not a math. It is a social science where you have to be able to take into account these social elements and the social element of trust, social element of safety, social element of of education, social element of value creation, all of those things matter. Socioeconomic value creation is an enormous um, contributor to overall economic growth and ultimately performance in your portfolio. But at the end of the day, nobody looks at those factors and thinks about that in res- with respect to how they should be positioning their portfolio relative to those kinds of metrics. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, 
investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. So what I think is really interesting about what you're doing is you're taking all of this you know, knowledge that you have of different types of socioeconomic uh, events and scenarios that have happened in the past using that to cast a lens of, you know, if similar things happen in the future, uh, what kind of investment decisions would make the most sense? You've been able to, you know, technologize that, actually make it systematic, uh, put it into a, a technology tool where you don't have to keep that all in your head all at the same time, but, you, you know, you, you, you have a, a digital, um, you know, enabler to, to help mm -hmm. you make those decisions. Uh, Tell us about, you know, how you went from, you know, what you've done in the past, which, you know, is this sort of very, um, you, know, uh, you know, erudite asset allocation analysis. And, and what's, what does it take? What's the effort required? What do you have to do to sort of convert all of that, you know, learning over decades of experience into a tool that will be able to help you do something similar? Well, I'll tell you the, the one thing that really, that I, that needed to happen, which finally did happen, which is, um, the ability to store massive amounts of data and then the computing power to be able to, to process those massive amounts of data, that had to move along. When I began working with recursive partitioning, which is the math that sits behind all of this and that actually supports the platform that we're building, you know, I was working with it in 1998. <laughs> I was using MATLAB and I had, I think, like a I think we had just gone to Windows NT and I would leave one small problem running in the afternoon and I would come back the next day after it had been running all night to see what it said. And sometimes it would still be going. And if I didn't like what it said and I had to make a change to an assumption, I had to start that process all over again. So it would literally take me sometimes more than a week up to a month to settle on a, a single model that I might use. Um, and, and, you know, what has changed is I can now use servers in the cloud. You know, we're built on an Azure stack, we're built on the Microsoft stack. So I can actually just rent computing power and just shove tons of data through that. Recursive partitioning has now evolved into not just cart models and decision trees, but random forests. <laughs> we can build so much more today um, than we could um, 20, five years ago, 28 years ago, when I started doing the math at its most basic level. And so what we're building is a platform to take that methodology. Right now, the two kind of main methodologies we have are linear regression and random walk, you know, Bayesian random walk, you know, Monte Carlo simulation. Those are the two biggest tools we have to help think about our portfolio. And what I'm trying to build is I'm trying to bring this platform that allows you to properly filter your data and create a decision matrix, a decision tree that allows you to use that playbook for making effective and more impactful decisions in your portfolio. Phenomenal. I remember in 1998, I was at a lab in MIT doing um, computational fluid dynamics and we were using what was then known as parallel computing 
which meant yeah. running about 30 Pentium processors in parallel. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite yeah. laughable. laughable. <laughs> I know. Of what the computing <laughs> power you have in the cloud is just mind boggling. So it is. Yeah, so it's good. You know, technology's caught up with your brain. That's great. Or it's, <laughs> it's catching up. And now, now you have this digital tool, which is an extension of Gina, kind of, you know, manipulating all this data and helping um, clients uh, make better investment decisions. Tell us about who, who your clients are and how you're trying to help them. What, what are the kind of problems you're trying to solve for that? So our clients really range. We Our clients range from uh, foundations that have very specific missions uh, to pension funds who who are, you know, obligated to, you know, provide the promised benefits to their beneficiaries. However, who are keenly observant um, uh, to the fact that many of the social kind of so social issues that occur within their own populations are partially to blame by some of the investments that they're making. And so they're trying to rectify um, that. Um, and so, so thinking about, you know, diversity um, and inclusion, for example, that's a big push right now in the pension space um, versus impact investing and more social efforts on the part of foundations. Um, when you get into, um, into the sovereign wealth funds, you get more into what I would call innovation investing. So looking for alpha opportunities on the back of the problems that we have created over the last 50 years. Um, and, you know, even all the way back down to, to um, the, the foundations, you know, many foundations have actually venture philanthropy arms where they're actively making investments that are consistent with their mission, but are considered a venture philanthropy investment where you can get significant and outsized returns. And so evaluating these and creating frameworks for whether or not the impact is working, um, whether or not it's measurable, what the time frame should be, uh, what the data points should be, what even the, the framework should be, that's really where we're kind of stepping in to help our clients think about what they're trying to achieve and how best to determine if they're achieving it. Yeah. And now that you, you're technologizing what you're doing, I mean, you, you're sort of releasing product generations, I suppose. <laughs> so, you know, tell us about what Chantico technology 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 are going to look like. What's the roadmap you have in your mind of how you're going to help your clients make these decisions? So interestingly, we have chosen, so Chantico Global is what I like to call the idea lab. That's where we're working directly with clients and we're coming up with great ideas. Some of those ideas are productizable. And so we're actually spinning those off into a separate entity called Chantico Technologies. And Chantico Technologies, the first rollout, which we're in the middle of doing our, uh, completing our seed rounds, pre-seed round four, um, is rolling out a tool that is actually starting in the wealth tech space. Part of that is because we can get that tool to market very quickly and there's a very eager audience that it whose adoption whose technology adoption is actually ramping up rather quickly so it's a good place to go in if you want to create a scalable model that can sustain itself in order to get to you know bigger applications um, so we will start in that space and we're starting really with just making financial planning something that is um, journey-based and not one single average that's a part of your financial plan uh, with a volatility that most clients do not understand. 
So that's our first product. It uses that recursive partitioning and that decision tree to help clients understand the, the scenarios under which or the conditions under which their portfolio are likely to perform or not likely to perform. It helps create expectations management. And quite frankly, it keeps people in their seat. But version 2.0 is expected to actually start to include these elements of, of social filters um, and ESG filters such that you can begin to program and hone your investments um, with an ESG lens or toward an ESG goal. Interesting. And, and your client base, you said, would be sort of uh, the wealth management audience first. Um, so it starts with wealth management, but but actually because wealth management has a very, very quick um, uh, road into the foundation world, because mm -hmm. there are so many foundations attached to wealth management units and so many large wealth managers who are attempting to focus um, let's call them, you know, clusters of families who are interested in, in similar programs, um, and then moving from there into the foundation world and on up the food chain into the institutional world. Um, you know, we think we can get some traction pretty quickly. Ultimately, our, our ultimate goal is to be able to sit down with some of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world and help them think about their policy goals. And you know, what's the, the, the revenue model, the business model that you have? And uh, since the, the title of this show is Impact Unicorns, what's the path to unicorn uh, land for you? Right. So our, um, our path to unicorn is, is you know, we're going to start with a basic subscription model. So, you know, if you look, for example, at other similar, let's call them, um, uh, scenario type, you know, models, you know, we have an idea of what we can achieve in terms of expected users. You know, we're, we're actually focusing our, you know, total user acquisition um, to, we want to be able to get to roughly about um, 30,000 users uh, in a, a very short period of time in about a, you know, three to five year period of time. If we can hit 30,000 users, and just to give you a comparison, Morningstar, which is probably the most adopted uh, tool in the wealth tech space has about 130,000 users. So we're not looking for a big ask here in terms of, of accomplishment. We can get to about $100 million uh, in revenue uh, on that uh, you know, 20 to 30,000 user goal uh, that we're going for. And it's a very achievable goal uh, in a in a reasonably short period of time. And what's going to be the additional features or capabilities that can get you from there to break into the very largest uh, institutional investors, whether they be the large pension funds or the sovereigns? What's the next set of capabilities that you, as the technology and as a firm, will need beyond that three to five year period? So I think you know right now the first thing the first thing we're trying to do and the first kind of big jump from 100 million up into the you know significantly higher revenue um, uh, goals is really just to take our tool and and uh, create geographically specific. Um, um, applications of that. So creating, for example, not even just a Europe tool, but a French tool, uh, a, a UK driven tool, uh, a, a, an Italian tool. Um, believe it or not, this is actually somewhat scalable. However, those markets, they are very untapped, right? So that that geographic, a Latin America tool, one of our biggest investor uh, uh, interested investors is actually a Latin America 
uh, as a Latin American investor who's specifically saying, if you make this a Latin American tool, nothing else exists like it, because so many of these other tools are so US focused and so US centric in their in their scenario design and their assumption sets, right? So, so creating uh, a, a global tool that is local to the various geographies we're gonna expand into significantly compounds what we can make over time. Um, and if you look at global assets, this is a $7.1 billion addressable market, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so shooting for $100 million, in my opinion, is modest. Yeah. And what leads to the scalability of your technology and your process to be able to do France and then do Latin America where others got stuck doing the US? Well, the great thing about these models is that they are actually quite stable. Once you've developed a model, um, your sort of, let's call it model refresh cycle is actually on about a two to three year period before you have enough data to really effectively change the model in a way that will matter, which means that you actually have a lot of, of, of staying power um, with your model. But what I can do with that model is I can put on um, alert. So I can tell you, I can I can give you as an advisor and as an as an investor an alert system, which will help you understand when you're having a node shift, right, in real time. So as data comes out, am I moving from one node to another, right? I can also give you tools that will help you understand if the data points that I'm looking at, if there are other very highly correlated data points that might come out on a more frequent basis that you might also want to, to, to measure. So I'm basically giving you more and more tools to be able to sort of understand, you know, our human brains are so complex. We can look outside and we can see clouds forming and we can quickly ascertain that the chance of rain is now rising. We don't have that kind of tool in the investment space. And I think that the investment world deserves a better tool. We need to be able to watch clouds form and make a decision about what's happening to our portfolio. And so all of those, that ex additional functionality will increase the tool. But to, to answer your question, I can continue to evolve my model towards markets and I have three years to add markets before I have to go back and begin refreshing. And that is the value, is that these are not fragile, quick changing tools and, and models. They're actually quite stable models with very, very good back tests on their ability to be able to give you information about what happens during various conditions. Right. And so unless you're in a very, very volatile economy globally, is changing month to month. If you're in sort of semi-normal circumstances, even you've got this sort of three-year window, you build something, your users are happy, and then you can go and sort of adapt your technology to a new market. The next uh, market. Yeah, and sort of keep, keep sort of growing that uh, you know, toolbox, basically. So. Precisely, global domination. Isn't that what we're all here for? I love the quote, the <laughs> investment industry deserves a better decision-making tool. Definitely. <laughs> Well, there's so much money at play, it certainly does. And uh, Gina, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're on the way to giving it to them. So great work on you know, what you've accomplished so far. It's, it's really already quite a monumental feat. And uh, you know, best of luck with everything going forward. Uh, tell us where you wanna be in 24 months. Well, in 24 months, our plan is to actually have our uh, sustainability tool in use. Between now and 24 months, we're getting our 
our initial tool out there. We're growing our users. Um, we are developing our distribution relationships. We're, we're you know, exerting our revenue, uh, our, our revenue plan. But then, you know, the, the goal in 24 months is to be able to have um, a functioning uh, tool that is usable as an ESG lens and for ESG goals. And you'll have to be building up a, a pretty solid team so that you can still you know, save some time for you know, improving those models. So um, that's, what, that's absolutely right. <laughs> how, do, how do you see your organization growing over that two year period? Well, so, you know, I think, you know, the reality of, of kind of what we are in the cost of doing business is we know that right now we're growing. Our, our team is, is based in Los Angeles um, and Florida. Um, we will uh, very likely continue to expand the team. Uh, we have very strong relationships with uh, UCLA's Masters of Financial Engineering program. We've actually just struck up a very strong uh, new relationship with Chicago Booth. Um, and we're building these relationships in order to help identify and source great talent. You know, but the reality is that we're also now being courted um, by countries who are looking to attract job creation um, abroad. So, you know, we're having conversations um, not just with the usual suspects, you know, everybody thinks, you know, China and the Philippines and India, we're talking with Panama, we're talking with Hungary. Um, and so, you know, these are, are ways for us to sort of help think about how we can grow the support module, um, grow the language set we have available to support as we move our, um, our, our operations from just a purely United States focused, United States, UK, English base uh, to a Latin America space. Spanish base to a European multilingual uh, base, um, you know, all of these things have to be taken into account and we have to have support um, in all of those languages and we have to have just language skill. And you're gonna have to have a, a large technology team. Um, absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you see at some point there'd be more technology people than the even economists and fin financial experts? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the great thing about the way that we've designed what we're doing is that many of the financial experts actually will um, live and work in the idea lab on the consulting side, which is a separate entity. And quite frankly, investors are not that interested in investing in consulting firms. Um, and so much of what the Chantico Technologies is really focused on is the data science folks, the financial engineers, um, you know, uh, we're, we are focused on .NET, .NET Core as our, as our core language. So .NET programmers, um, database uh, designers, database architects. And what's great about technology today is you can actually get one guy who can work up and down the stack, but we may have specialists like, you know, user interface, the user interface of a decision tree model that is meant to be highly visual um, is, is the user design will actually probably be one of the most important elements of what we roll out is every single color, every single font, the size, the, 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 the you know, where everything is on the page user design will be a big element uh, of what we do. And so that, that UX designer will be very key. And then of course, we'll have to grow product management. We'll have to grow, you will have to grow, um, you know, QA. We'll have to ensure that we have support groups, you know, to be able to, to um, support and keep track of, uh, you know, people who find bugs, requests, upgrades. Um, so we'll have to actually build out a full and functioning uh, technology team. Wow, okay. so. 
as you as you pointed out, global domination, and so that's going to require <laughs> a big army. And I can see that you're building one. So it'll be great yeah. to to see how you're doing in a, a year or two's time. So look forward to having you back on the show, and you can tell us about how the uh, the army has grown in the meantime. But well, today, thank you, and I and I hope to earn my my unicorn horn soon. <laughs> There's one on the in the in the mail to you, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when you reach your 100 million first target, I'm sure it'll pop up in the post. So, anyway, Gina, Fantastic. great to have you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Andronel. I really appreciate it. You have a good day. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking Rate This Podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.